Well, good morning. Let's stand and read the Word of God. Uh, Matthew 22, 34 to 40. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandments in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Let's pray. Lord, normally this passage is spoken in different contexts, but today we're using it for parenting to finish up our series. And, uh, you know, we all have goals for our children in terms of how we want them to be turn out as adults. And this passage is wonderful, Lord, because you, you lay it out clearly that, you know, if we, if we love you and we love others the way you love us, that we've fulfilled your desires. Uh, we've fulfilled your desires for us and what you're looking for from us. So I pray, God, that um, we're able to finish up today with a solid foundation of how to raise our kids and, and also a full trust in you and your ways. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We can edit that out. <laughs> so, unless something else arises today uh, from today's sermon, this should be the last sermon in the parenting series. So, what started out was with an idea maybe three, four weeks, ended up being two months, but it's been well worth it for me. <laughs> and uh, it's good for me to review in my own head how I'm raising my children and God's ways, and I hope it's been profitable for you as well. But just in review, we've looked at sort of three pillars, uh, self-sacrificial love being the first, discipline being the second, and third, a reaffirmation of love or reconciliation. And then we're doing a last section here on the heart, the heart of our children. And just so you know, like nobody I know uh, would define parenting this way with like pillars and these are the three pillars. No one I know would speak in these ways. This is, so like there's multiple ways of looking at raising children. This is just something that I've come up with in my own framework to understand how to raise my kids God's way. But again, I've, there's no book saying three pillars this, and there's no pastor that will preach three pillars that. Obviously, there'll be parts of, you know, like they'll preach the same principles, but um, yeah, it's just my way of organizing it. So um, just so you know. So if you're ever talking to somebody and say the three pillars are, no one's going to know what you're talking about except within this context. But I feel like it's a really good way of understanding it, anyhow. So well, last week we looked at the introduction to the heart of a child, and today we're going to complete it. And I'm not going to introduce you to a new passage in the scripture. Normally the Bible is open and we're going through them. Because I'm using, I'm just going on from last week's sermon, we're just going to review last week's passages and then spend a lot of time in application today of those passages. And, and again, today's kind of a little bit different too in that uh, much of the teaching has been more for the toddler stage and the uh, middle child stage or young children stage, just because of the amount of kids we have in, this, in, the, in our church. But uh, today is really important for teenagers, really important for teenagers. And um, those of us who have teenagers or are approaching teenagers, this will be foundational. <clears throat> but I do want to just start off with one thing. And... Uh, I gotta eat curl a little bit and take it on the chin. I uh, <laughs> I want to apologize to the women in the church because I've been told a couple times 
lately that I might have offended a few of you by some of the comments I've made here about the, the physicality of a woman and uh, not being as strong as a man. And I don't think that's what the offensive part was. It was the way I said it. So you can still illustrate a point without um, you know, making things sarcastic and have a joke. So I apologize for that. But sometimes when you're up here and you're emotionally charged and you come from a sarcastic background, or like a humorous background, at least you think you're funny. You can sometimes say things that you don't mean. And there's been multiple times I've gone home in the three years after sermons and gone, I wish I'd never said that. But sometimes you know, I got foot in the mouth syndrome, just like the rest of you do at times. So, um, but my apologies are, I hope you accept them and uh, I love you guys and that was never meant to hurt, hurt the female agenda in the church. With that, however, let's move on to where we left off last week. And uh, I was fumbling and fumbling last night through my message and trying to get clarity. And then Janice was listening to me trying to gain some control of the whole thing. And she drew out on this piece of paper what I was saying as she was listening. And I thought, man, what a perfect way of me just teaching from this whiteboard to understand it. Because I can use this and not be relying on my notes as much. But the basic premise of last week's message when we started off was that when we're raising our children... We have to deal with the heart of the children because the heart is the control center of our children's lives. Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Some passages and translations will say it's the, wells, the wellspring of life. So a wells, if you think of a wellspring, it's something where, the, um, where something bountiful comes from. So Jesus reaffirms this idea that everything you see in your child in terms of actions and speech comes from the flow of the heart. So when we look at peripheral issues in their behavior, that's a determining factor of what's going on inside them. Um, so we, you know, we talked in Matthew chapter, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 7 and Matthew 12 about everything that, that comes out of the heart comes from, like, oh, your actions and speech come out of the heart. And Jesus addresses this with the, with the Pharisees and whatnot. So if everything that comes out of your heart, in terms of action and speech, is, is neutral and morally bent towards God, then that's a great thing, right? Because obviously then you're going to just uh, love God, love others the way he wants you to. However, we go from Jeremiah 17, 9. This will turn on me. That the heart is deceitful and all else is desperately sick. So that means that the heart, according to God, starts from a place of unrighteousness or a, a darkness, right? So the actions and speech that come out of us without God's wisdom is generally going to look like this. So the only way then to deal with our children in order to produce uh, adults that orientate their lives towards God in terms of fulfilling Matthew 22, which is to love God and love others, is that we're going to have to do something in the way we parent to deal with the heart. And I called this last week uh, gospel-focused parenting. Gospel-focused parenting, which means we have a lot more to do than merely telling our children what to do and correcting their behavior. They're going to need quadruple bypass surgery, and they're going to need to be parented in a way that seeks to uncover and expose the attitudes of their hearts, which have led to the sinful behavior in the first place. So gospel-focused parenting... I would define it in this way. Now, I realize the definition often has to include the cross of Christ. I get that. That's what the gospel is. 
But I want to use that definition greater than just thinking of the cross. I think I would define it in this way. To, to def, uh, do a gospel-focused parenting means you set a biblical worldview before our children in as many contexts as possible. So your goal, and my goal, is to set a biblical worldview before your children in as many categories of life and as contexts as possible. There are multiple worldviews out there competing for our children's attention. Uh, in our country, I'd like to study actually more how this came to be. I haven't done the work yet to find out, but we have a fascination in Canada with Eastern religion. We love Buddhism. We love Hinduism. We love this whole sort of like Star Wars kind of thing that the force, there's a force out there and it's with you and you can control the universe with your thoughts and the universe is for you and all these kind of crazy things. But this Eastern religion and our fascination has hijacked our culture and we're infatuated by it. And not to mention Darwinism and evolution. It's pervasive in schools. It's pervasive in, in university. So our kids are bombarded and the worldviews are just tempting them to go the way of evolution, atheism, Buddhism, Hinduism, uh, crystals, and all sorts of things. So we need to set God's ways and purposes for the lives before them so that the gospel is embedded in their, in their fibers. And I'll give you an analogy like with a, with a cup. If I have a glass and it's full of coffee, and I bump that glass, it's going to spill coffee. If I bump that glass when it's full of water, it's going to spill water. It doesn't spill anything else. When we have uh, raising our children, if we don't impart and embed God's word in, into their hearts and into his purposes and designs for them in every category of life, when they get bumped, it ain't going to be God's word that's spilled out. It's going to be every worldview that's mixed in with it and have a syncretistic view of God. That's why people today, when you talk to them, believe in God. A lot of them do, but, that's, but it's not Jesus Christ. <laughs> right? And, and, and it doesn't mean that you, your life, in terms of the way you worship Him, has changed any. Um, so again, we have to like, embed this into our kids' hearts and minds. Remember, we need to start early. Proverbs 22, verse 6. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's older, he will not depart from it. So teenagers whose lives are orientated towards God... That's because it was imparted to them when they were young. It's very difficult. It's not impossible, but it's difficult to get a teenage kid around 17 and start teaching them the ways of God because basically what they were taught in 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, all those years is already their foundation for thinking. Again, it's not impossible. God's grace can conquer anything, but if teenagers are going to orientate their lives towards God, it has to start when they're young. So when they leave home... We want them to be able to look at life situations, both in their personal and public lives, and know how to apply God's truth to every situation they face. And if they don't know how to apply it, at least they have the tools and the resources to know how to find out. Because that's, it's not that you have to be the most, you don't have to have all the wisdom in the world, but you have to know where to find wisdom and how to get it. So, if internalization of the gospel is what it's going to take to change our hearts and our kids, it's imperative that two things are present in our own lives. One, that we know the gospel. And two, we model it to our children. I'm going to speak about both categories today. Let's talk about what we need to know in terms of the gospel basics. This is not an exhaustive list. If you said to me after, Andrew, you missed this, or you missed that. I'm like, I know. I'm trying to hit the highlights of the, of the main points here. Um, 
And I, I divided it into two categories, the spiritual components and the practical components of the gospel. Here's the spiritual components of the gospel for your children. One, the child needs to learn who they are in relationship to God. They need to know that they were created. They didn't evolve. As Bill Nye says, who, who believes that we came from bananas. Ken Ham asked him, do you think we came from bananas? And he says, yes, we were all tied to bananas. That's bananas. But anyway, like that's, that's the pervasive teaching out there. Uh, but yeah, we're not evolved, but we're created by him and for him and in his image. <laughs> that means that God made our children and they have to learn this that he's, they, were, they, were, they were created with a specific purpose and ultimate purpose was to worship them that was the ultimate purpose so they have to think of themselves not to be independent but dependent on God and, and they, want, they have to see that they're going to come under his authority there has to be a willingness to come under his authority this is so counter-cultural we are in, in our culture says you're independent, you are your own, your own God, your own um, whatever you design life to be, whatever morals, ethics you, you want to create, they're good with God. There's, you don't have to come under anybody's authority. But our children need to learn who they are in relationship to God. They also point to, need to learn that, children, that, uh, learn that their sin hurts God, that their sin hurts God. They need to learn that they are sinners. And they, that sin, when they do it, it actually hurts God. Teach them not only how they sin, but why it affects God and others. So not just how they did it, but why it impacts God and why it impacts others. Again, very countercultural to our self-esteem culture. In a self-esteem culture, how dare you tell me or my child that I've got flaws. Or that I, I, I have to do everything in my power to build these children up. Well, in the gospel, you, you, can, you, can, you can love them and you can take care of them. and you can, um, It's not that you don't esteem them. But again, self-esteem pushes you away from God. Because if you esteem yourself, you won't esteem God. <laughs> right? So self-esteem is a, a culture that we live in. And it's basically, it's a form of idolatry. It's, it's getting you away from God and putting all the energy and focus on yourself. So the children need to learn that when they do sinful things, that it's an ultimate expression against God and other people. Third, in the spiritual component, the child needs to learn that only God can take care of their sin. You can't, they can't rescue themselves, but God has provided a way for them to be restored. Again, uh, are there any attempts by, themselves, by them to become <coughs> perfect and earn God's favor? That won't happen. God has to do it. He's provided a way through Christ Jesus. And restoration comes through confession and repentance. That's the basic spiritual components of the gospel. And I'm going to work these through with you in examples to see how this would look with your kids. Um, this is the practical side of the gospel. The child needs to learn that God has designed a blueprint for how they are to operate in all categories of life. God is interested in every aspect of your life. He's interested in every aspect of your children's life. How they speak, he has how they speak, I should say, they have, he has a blueprint. How they handle anger, he has a blueprint. How they handle being gener generous or being selfish, he has a blueprint. How they handle their finances, he's got a blueprint. Their work ethic, whether they're lazy, how they respond to peer pressure, how they deal with insecurity, how they trust, how they function in roles in marriage. How they have, have used sexuality. God has a blueprint. 
you've got a blueprint, then they need to know it. They need to know it in the practical sense, which means that we need to know it as well in the practical sense. Second, our child needs to learn that to love God is to obey God. Kids need to learn that their obedience is ultimately not what parents require, but what God requires. <coughs> right? It's not what, only what mom and dad want, it's what God wants. A relationship with God is not reduced to a belief system. It's just not believing in something. It's not like a theoretical idea. It's, it's shown and demonstrated by action. Love is action-orientated. It's practically played out. And, I, and I, this is so key because in our culture, even when I deal with adults, one of my biggest hurdles with dealing with adults in evangelism, even within the Christian church, as helping them believe, understand that belief in Jesus is not just this intellectual faith. It's ultimately expressed by obedience and love. Hebrews 11, the whole, the whole champions of faith um, passage, which talks about Abraham, Moses, Rahab, all the, Noah, all the greats. In there, it, has, it never talks about anything they believed to be true. I mean, it, it ultimately, they had to believe something to act on it, but it, their whole faith passage is defined by their obedience to God based on what they knew. The whole thing is an action-orientated list. And what's cool about this, it's a New Testament book. Jesus has already risen and died. And who are the models for faith? Not the New Testament Christians, Old Testament Christians, who didn't know Jesus' name, didn't know that he was going to be crucified on the cross. And yet the New Testament writers say, We'll use Old Testament guys to teach you about faith in Jesus Christ. Isn't that remarkable? He's saying, I'll use Old Testament people to teach you about how to live as a Christian in the New Testament era. And, and, and it's all, when God would speak, He'd reveal truth, they'd believe it, and they would act upon it. Our children need to see and understand that ultimately the way they live in action is, a, is how they love God, not what they believe. Their belief will ultimately impact their ability to act, but it's not what God's looking for primarily. And we're going to get into this big time in the book of John coming up. Third thing, they need to learn that obedience will produce blessing on one side and disobedience will produce consequences on the other. When faced with choices, they need to know what God promises on either side so they can weigh choices out carefully. So for example, in the teenage years with dating, you see, this is what God says if you unite yourself with an unbeliever. Here's what the consequences will be, and here's what, and if you obey, here's what uh, blessings will produce. Uh, in, the, in the category of work ethic, if you work the way God's designed, here's what God will promise. If you don't, here's what's going to happen. And so um, you, help the children, you help your teenagers and young people work through the blessings and obedience so that they see the practicality of going God's way in this world. If they sin, we help them uncover the motivations of their heart for why they chose to, but then it creates opportunities for us to open up the scriptures and show them not, that they're not the only ones in life who struggle in these categories. Every single story in the Bible is basically about how they messed up and how God had to redeem them from it. So their children teach their children they're not weird, they're just normal. But it's a chance for us to open the scriptures and, and say, you know, God's chosen people did the same things as you, struggled with the same things as you, had the same doubts as you, thought the same way you did, struggled with sexuality the same way as you, and so on. <coughs> they were tempted in the same ways as you. And then show them how they worked through it. When they obeyed what the blessings were, when they disobeyed what the consequences were. And it also gives opportunities for us as parents to share our testimonies with our children and get vulnerable and say, this is what mom and dad struggled with. 
and here's how when we sinned against God, how we how we paid for it, and here's how we had victory when we and blessings when we did. Again, I realize there's more that could be added. This is not exhaustive, but it's the key things to think about. Now, I want to take all these principles in terms of the spiritual and practical components now, and I want to walk you through two categories of life with children. Young children, uh, this is past toddler stage. This is in the category of speaking and language. And then I'll give you an example, then I'll play it out with teenagers as well. And I'll show you what it looks like to shepherd the heart. And again, this is one example of different ways you can go. I mean, this is not like a, a blueprint, but this is a, an example of what could work and how it could sound. So let me first play the, well, okay, the first category is stewardship. Okay, stewardship. In other words, you're gonna, you want to help your child view themselves as a manager of God's money and resources and material things. So this whole mentality that it's my house, my car, my toys, mine, 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 mine possessions. In the, in the scriptures, it says that God never in any of the scriptures says anywhere that he's relinquished anything in creation to us as ours. He says, I am the, I, all the gold and silver is mine. I created, the, I created you, I created everything. I'm still, the, I'm still the creator, I'm still basically the owner, but I've given it to you to manage on my behalf. So here's what it looks like to not shepherd the heart of a child, even in a Christian home, in the air of stewardship. Your kids are playing, and you notice a huge mess on the floor of toys. And they're stepping on them, and kicking them, and it's all over the place. And, when they're done playing, they leave this huge mess on the floor. So it bugs you because as a parent, you know how much money you spent on those things, and that a lot of these are nice gifts, and it seems like your children have no appreciation for the things they have. So you come in and you tell them to clean up. And because you've been following the principles of the first six sermons, they obey you the first time. And, they, and you've been diligent, and so they clean up. So you, you look, for all intents and purposes then, it's been a success. You, they've made a mess, you've come in, you say, clean up, they do, and so you think, this is great. Again, under the, in the toddler stage, that's what you're looking for. You're looking for obedience. They, they have to learn to come under the authority of mom and dad. But now they're older, they're seven, eight, nine, and this pattern is still constant in their lives. They're still always making a mess and then kicking things and not taking care of stuff. So as a mom and dad, you're concerned because you see a heart, heart, heart issue there. You think, when this child gets older, what are they going to do when they own a car? What are they going to do when they have a cell phone? What are they going to do when they have an iPad? What do they do when they get married and they have their own home? Like, are they going to continue in this pattern of not taking care of stuff? That's, that's, that's what you're concerned about. So, but focusing on obedience so, and, and, and just the peripheral issues will not change the heart towards Bending themselves toward loving God and loving others in area stewardship. Let me give you the same scenario, shepherding the, shepherding the heart now, the way we want to use the gospel principles. You walk in, same scenario. Kids are playing, they're stepping over toys, you notice that it's a big mess, and when they leave the room, it's a, it's a disaster. You come in, and you ask them to you sit, you sit down with them. And so you sit them down, and a conversation goes something like this. And I'm going to use an exact conversation pretty much word for word I've had with my boys. And I'll just, I'll substitute Jason's name in there for the sake of simplicity. Here's what it would sound like. Me. Jace, you know that God loves Daddy and, and Daddy loves God, right? Jace. 
Part of loving God for Daddy is to take care of the things that God has given me. You know, like, see this house that we live in? God gave me that. See that nice Maxima car outside? God gave me that. You see, the, like, the gym that I go to work in every day? God gave me that. You know what this means, Jay? says that this is called being a steward. What a steward is, do you know what a steward is? Blank stare, right? This is me. A steward is someone who takes care of other, other people's things. So as a steward of God, I take care of things God has given me, and that is why I put things away, Jace. I clean up, that's why when I go in the garage, I put my tools away. That's why I clean up the car, and that's why we, take, we clean up the house every night. We take care of the things God has given us. So do you see your toys over there? <coughs> looks, he looks around. I want you to be like Daddy Jace. I want you to be a good steward also. It's the way we can show God we love him and appreciate the things he has given us. So you're ready to clean up with Daddy? Because I'll help you this time. And Jace smiles and we go off and clean. After we're done, I go to him and I say, Jace, you know what? I'm so proud of you and God's so proud of you too because today we've been good stewards. See the gospel principles? He's been created for a purpose, to be a steward. He's not been created to think independent of himself. He's also, I'm also stewarding and teaching gospel principles that he's got a blueprint for his life. You can't view yourself as independent of God and in the category of stewardship, you can't act alone and think of this as your stuff. I'm giving him, I'm already orientating his heart towards God and, and to make him think in those categories. I'm also putting my life on display because I'm using myself as a model. You need to be like daddy. Um, copy me in the way I serve God as well, so that he sees that I'm under authority. So I'm not just asking him to be under authority, I'm, not, I'm telling him to look at me because I'm under authority. What this would look like in the teenage years would be a little different, because um, I still imply the same principles, but I didn't get into the aspects of like sin and things like that, because again, the child might not be mature enough to fully understand. But if it was a teenager, and I noticed that they were not doing these things and taking care of their stuff and were, had a, like a flippant attitude towards uh, material stuff, I might, I'd sit them down and I'd open up the scriptures and I'd show them the blessings and warnings that come from God's word in the area of stewardship. I'd remind them in the scriptures that they're going to have to give an account to God one day for stewardship. Jesus uses parables to speak about that. When you go, you're going to have to give an account to God. <laughs> And if there's any areas of sin I can identify in the area of stewardship, then I'd get, bring them to confession and repentance. So again, it's just the, 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 the ability for the, the teenager to understand and comprehend Jesus in relation to the life allows me to go there in the gospel. At this age, uh, again, they don't fully understand what the cross means, <coughs> so, so I don't really use that as much. But I'm preparing their hearts for the future. How about the category of generosity and sharing? And sharing is a, is a nasty one, three, four, oh, five, six, seven, eight, and so on. Um, here's an example of not shepherding the heart in the category of sharing, but still producing a, a positive outcome. Friends are over playing with your kids, or they're playing among siblings, and you notice they start fighting over a, a toy. You come in, tell them to share, and so maybe once, so if they, let's say they didn't listen to you, then you can discipline them by removing the toy, just taking it away and say, until you guys you know, learn to share, we're just, you guys can't play with this. And so it's an environmental consequence and they eventually will learn to share because they're tired of their toys getting taken away. Or perhaps they, because again, you've been diligent in your parenting, they listen first time and they share right away. 
So for all intents and purposes, it's a success. So again, in the toddler stage, this is what you're looking for. You want them to learn to come under your authority and obey your first time. But now, big child seven, eight, nine, this is a pattern. Here's a pattern, and you see that you're concerned about the heart of your child because they're, they're, they just don't have a, a generous sharing attitude towards other people. So you're afraid when they get older that what they'll do is they'll start focusing on building their own kingdom. They'll only think about themselves and how much they can acquire, and when they see people in need, they won't actually even look to help out. All, and if they do give, and they are generous, and they do share, it's because it'll, it'll benefit them in the moment. But it won't be for the long, because it benefits God or other people. And maybe they'll grow up to even be a moot, because they, they learn to hoard, and they don't learn to be generous. But let me show you shepherding the heart in the category of generosity and sharing, and I'll use the, the same scenario where two kids are fighting over a toy. And I'll use Jackson as an example. This is me. Jackson, you know that God loves Daddy and Daddy loves God, right? Jackson nods. You know, Jackson, part of loving God for Daddy is to be generous and to share things with other people. See, it's good to not just think about how I, my own happiness and what I want. It's good to actually think about other people's happiness and what they want. Did you know that I do this all the time with you and your brothers? A bit of a pouty lip, but kind of looking sideways at me. Um... Yeah, I do this with my laptop, Jackson. Now I got his interest. You know that laptop that I always tell you that God has given me? Well, have you noticed that Daddy shares that with you pretty much all the time that you want to, even when I'm busy and where I'm, even when I'm working on it? You notice that Daddy always shares with you? A little bit of a smile from Jackson. Do you think there are times, Jackson, though, that when I don't actually want to share with you? Blank stare. <laughs> me... Um, sometimes I don't want to, Jax, but you know I do it anyway because I love you. And I want to show you that God, show God that I love Him by caring about your feelings. See, that's why both God and I want you to share. So let me ask you, honey, do you think that you'd be willing to be like Daddy now and share with your friends or share with your brother? Hands over the toy with a groan or a bit of a smile, like, you know. When he does that, they say, you know what, Jax, I'm so proud of you for sharing, and so was God, and give him a big hug. And I, can, and, I, and I mean this with all sincerity, when I've taken this approach with the boys, I've always actually, I think without exception, I've always had, they've always shared their toy right immediately, without a fight. Because I'm using myself as an illustration again, putting it in God's perspective, and so on and so forth. Now if as a teenager, and you saw them growing up with selfishness in their life, it would look different. Uh, similar but different. You would address aspects, again, of God's uh, blessings that would be received from being a generous person from Scripture and warn against the, uh, the curses that would come if they were stingy. Again, go through a scriptural accounts of what it's like from stories in the Bible. And uh, again, if it was any areas of sin, bring them to confession and repentance. And then nothing like using your own life as well as a model when you've recognized areas of gener when you've gone God's way and when you haven't and what it's produced. But you see the difference in both, right? One focuses on behavior, and one focuses on the motivation of the heart for why they did or didn't do what they did. Focusing on the heart orientates the, the child's heart towards God's purposes and design for their lives, and encourages them not to act or think independently from God. And if it's a sin issue, God is, only, is the only one who can ultimately rescue them and, and, and deal with their sin. And this has a major impact in sh shaping the, the hearts of our children. 
You know, and here's why. It gives them principles to live by, not just beliefs. It gives them principles to live by, not just beliefs. And so important in the teenage years. Because they know that Christianity is a viable way of life and they've reaped the benefits relationally and, and in every other way when they've gone through this in their early years. And here's why it's so important that we get a hold of this. Because as the child gets older, you and I become less of an authority and more of an influence in their life. So if you look on this chart here, you'll see this uh, graph. Zero to 18 years, because people usually leave home, say, around 18 or go to school. But in the early stage of birth, you are maximum authority in your child's life. They can't live, or like, they wouldn't survive one day without you as an infant. Like they need you, you're full authority, you dictate everything about their lives. But as it moves towards 18 years old, you become less of an authority and more of an influence. You don't really influence a child at zero, you basically are an authority for the child. And then, and then by 18, you can't really be an authority anymore. And the biggest reason why is you don't have the physical capabilities anymore of forcing them to listen to you. <laughs> when they're young, your word is law. When you're young, your word is law because you can physically enforce it. Put them in their room, put them on the stairs, take things away, give them a pop on the bum, whatever. You can do any of those things and they, you can physically do it. But when they're 17, that's no longer an option or it's a limited option. So all that's left to your disposal and my disposal is an influence in their life. Now watch this. They will only allow us to strongly influence them if they, if they will will it, if they've learned to trust us. They will have to have learned to have trust us and seen the benefits of going God's way throughout their entire early lives if we're going to be able to strongly influence them. They won't come under our authority, or under our influence, I should say, if we fail to be trustworthy in their lives and we haven't taught them the fruit of going God's way and orientating their lives towards them. But most importantly is that it's not only about knowing God in these situations, we have to model it. The trust for the kids will come from not only our knowledge of the Word of God, but from the modeling of the Word of God. And that is super, super important. It's imperative that we live out God's way in every aspect of our lives. There's like limited room for hypocrisy. I'm not saying we have to be perfect, because we can, we, but I'm just saying if there's any area that we practice hypocrisy and we set up our children to see right through us. We're not going to convince our children the only way to live is God's, and in order to live towards God is, is to follow the biblical worldview. If we teach them to forgive, but we model unforgiveness in their lives. What if we teach them about biblical finances and then operate in opposition to that? What if we teach them about drunkenness and yet we, we drink, in excess, drink in excess on a regular basis? What if we teach on marriage roles to our children and then effectively don't operate that way within our own homes? The children will see right through us. You know, there's an analogy in the United States. I was taught this by an American. Uh, and watch this carefully. <laughs> Here's what they said. This is an American said this to me. Everybody knows in the United States... Everybody in the United States knows this. 
that um, God is number one and football is number two. American taught me that. Isn't that good? Every child knows in our lives when we say, for example, God is uh, number one and then our extracurricular, extracurricular activities are number two <laughs> or whatever, right? In relation to spending time with them. It's, it's absolutely imperative that um, we model the gospel in our own lives. Again, do they see ourselves in the spiritual components of the gospel, understanding that we are created by God for a purpose and that we understand that our sin hurts God and that we come to him through confession and repentance? Do, we, do, they, do they see us in our own lives living out the fact that we know that God has a blueprint for our lives in terms of work, marriage, and so on? And that, that through our lives, expressing love to God is through obedience and that blessings and cursings come out of that as well. Again, extremely important we do this because there's so many competing views vying for their loyalty. They need to see mom and dad convinced the world has nothing to offer them and the biblical worldview is the only way to live. It's, not, it's the only option that makes sense for life and can answer their life's questions, deal with life's issues, and make sense of the crazy world that they live in and we live in. <clears throat> I want to end with this interesting story about um, about modeling modeling this and having no hypocrisy. True story. I wish I could make it up, but I can't. I had spent uh, two weeks modeling uh, stewardship to the boys, uh, speaking in the terms I told you today every time. Always about you know uh, going down that path with stewardship. So I'm helping the boys clean up around supper time, um, all the toys are on the floor in a, after a play time, and uh, we're, we're putting stuff away, and I pick up a Hot Wheels car, and uh, the, the toy box is from me to Evan away, and I huck it across the room, right into the box, good Michael Jordan three-pointer, and my son Jackson turns to me and says, Daddy, you're not being a good steward. Isn't that good? And I, and I walked up to him and said, good for you, son, you're right. Because my problem with these guys is they kept, like, break, like they were playing with things, like, often too rough and, like, we're going to break things. Now, he didn't know it was a metal car and it wouldn't break, but that's not the point. He said, Daddy, you're not being a good steward. Five years old, two weeks of teaching about stewardship. When this kid gets older, will he be a good steward? I can't promise he will. He might disappoint and, and go down a sinful path, but I doubt it. If he, goes to, if he chooses to sin against that God in those ways, then he'll be cognitive of it at least. <laughs> It'll be a deliberate, uh, intentional thing. He says, you're, you're not being a good steward. And it was funny, the other day in the bathtub, I, I was downstairs and I heard Jackson and Jace arguing, in, or arguing, not arguing, but discussing in the bathtub about them both being good stewards in the bathtub. <laughs> I have no idea what the option, what they were talking about, but I thought, I was like, amen, like it's working. Now, could you, if I asked them, do you know what a steward is? They couldn't tell me it's being a manager of God's resources. They couldn't say that. But it doesn't matter. Whatever I was doing, he recognized that not taking care of your stuff is not being a good steward. It was beautiful. It was, it was great. And, uh, yeah, so, I mean, if we, imagine, imagine if we could get those categories of life in anger, in <coughs> gossip, in jealousy, in money, in, 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 in sexuality, and like uh, tattling, and like um, stealing, lying. Man, if your kid knew 
just God's way, like a blueprint in all categories of life. By the time they hit the teenage years, and especially teenage years, they got this gospel embedded in their lives. And now it's just a matter of like willful disobedience against the truth or not, not ignorance to the truth. That's so much more powerful. I'll leave you with this. I, I, I feel I need to say this too. I'll tell you why I think this could be really practically helpful. And when I speak to you Christian people, like the Christians who've grown up in Christian families, you probably can attest to this in your own life. I've, I've noticed a common denominator in almost all Christian kids growing up in Christian homes. When it comes to articulating the gospel, uh, their own personal testimonies of salvation, they have a really hard time. Why? They, 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 they've, they've always believed in Jesus throughout their whole life. They've known only God's way their whole life. Um, they've, um, you know, they've never sort of questioned it too much. Maybe a little doubts here and there. But they've, they believe like they've almost, through osmosis, become a Christian. Um, I just sort of osmosis my way into being a Christian through my family. The thing about it is it's an impossibility. Jesus says you have to be born again. Well, when you grow up in a Christian home... If you always believe in Jesus, always go to youth, always pray, always are on the worship team, and you're in comparison to others, you see yourself as good, ki- good kids because you're not sleeping around, you're not drunk, then it's really difficult for you to see yourself as sin, having sin. Imagine if, if our parents and we shepherd our children's hearts in this way. Now watch this. Did you know that gossip, jealousy, and coveting is in the same category as murder? For those who won't inherit the kingdom of God, look it up. Murder is in the same category as jealousy and gossip in the, in the, in the categories of not inheriting the kingdom. How many people have here have experienced gossip in youth group? Any of you ever been jealous in youth group? Jealous of, oh, that girl's got my potential boyfriend that I want? Or my... That, boy has the potential girl I want, or I might have worded that completely wrong, but whatever, go with the flow. Um, yeah, jealous, how about coveting? Ever been in, in, ever been on the worship team and some, you're a piano player and some smoke show piano player comes on and just blows you out of the water, and then you're jealous and jealous, you're getting bitter and enraged? Like there, how about someone who sing better than you, play the fiddle better than you, uh, is prettier than you, is smarter than you, can understand the word of God better than you? Man, gossip, jealousy, coveting, it's all in there, the same as murder. But we don't look at those things. And if we raise our children to focus on the heart, wouldn't it be so much easier when it came to testimony time for a Christian person going home going, oh my goodness, I know I need a Savior. (laughs) I know I need a Savior. I don't have to be convinced about the osmosis gospel. I need to be born again because my sin is as vile as the person who's the prostitute on the street. Right? So you see, shepherding the heart gives the child the understanding that they are, they, that they're not kind of like a, um, they're not any different than anybody else in terms of the need for Christ. It's so powerful, and I think it's super important, because I, but again, it's due diligence on our part to raise them in these ways. So, that's my last thought on that. So, again, not a lot of scripture today. Um, I broke from the pattern, but um, this is basically the application of last week's sermon.